You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with A.L. Winter, who is a professor at Hebrew University and also at Lancaster University. And he has been working at the Center for the Study of Rationality at Hebrew University for many years. And he's written this book right here called Feeling Smart, Why Our Emotions Are More Rational Than We Think. So, look, you've been at the Center for the Study of the Decision-Making Literature. A lot of people think that emotions and rationality are, they're alternatives, right? They're substitutes for one another. They're alternative ways of supporting and motivating our decisions. And I think that the mainstream living our, our decisions and saying, you know, system one is kind of a likely to lead us astray, you know, emotions are there as a shortcut or a fallback. But if we have the capacity to exercise our reason, then we should, you know, do that. And so emotions are really second best, right? Like when the rationality is not available, we can lean on this. I think you, you make a much more subtle argument there and you talk about kind of emotions and rationality as complements, or you talk about, let's say the rationality of emotions. So, so I guess the question is, you know, if you were this perfectly rational person, if you were Spock, who you <laughs> talk about in the book, if you were Spock and you could choose to be emotional, you could choose to have an emotional landscape. Would you? I guess that's the question. And I think, you, I think I know your answer, but maybe tell us how, how would a fully rational person approach the idea of designing an emotional landscape? So thank you, Gary, first for having me on your program. And just a small correction, I'm still very much a member of the Center for the Study of Rationality. I'm proud of it. It's a, it's a center that was built by Bob Auman, a Nobel laureate in economics about 20 years ago. And we have a group, it's interdisciplinary group of excellent people doing research on decision-making. Now to your question, I wouldn't give up emotions. I would, first of all, I wouldn't choose between either emotional decision-making or rational decision-making. Each of them alone is not going to operate well, but the two together, and, and my emphasis in the book is the two together. Let me explain briefly what's the advantage in our emotional responses in decision-making. There are actually, one is the way emotions affect our decision, but also in interactions, the way our emotion affect the decision-making with whom we interact. And in, for instance, in an environment where we are in conflict with other people, emotion offer us a way to credibly transmit to other people what are the issues that are important for us when we negotiate, for instance. And you'll be surprised. In most cases, we can't fake it. We are very bad in faking emotional expression. That is to say, people are very easily recognized when your emotional reaction is credible or when it's genuine or, or when it's faked. And therefore, it's a very important communication tool for individuals. If we give it up, we are going to lose. The other way is that emotions are telling it us. Emotions have been developed through evolution to assist us in surviving. And they still do. They still do in the sense that they warn us against danger. They warn us against the thing that would do us well, or not warn us, but show us those persons that we should get in touch with, they should connect to. And so for, let me give you just one example, in, which really, I think, emphasizes the role of emotions in our decision-making. This is about interaction. I guess it happened to you that you met someone that, and, and you said to yourself, Gosh, I know this person, but, but where do I know him from or, or her, right? And you can't figure out for yourself. And you will remember very little of the person, although you will be 100% sure that you have seen him in the past. You will not know what profession he is. You will not know his name, where he come from, whether he was 
whether you know him from school or from undergrad studies or your first job you took after studying and so forth. But one thing you'll remember for sure, very vividly, is whether your interaction with that person was positive or negative, whether he is kind or arrogant, whether he's somebody that you enjoyed being with, or you just was looking for a play, looking for a way to to disappear. And these bits of information are so much more important than, you know, where he lives, what's his profession. They are so much more valuable for the ultimate decision-making, whether you want to engage with this person again, cooperate with him, or you put him aside. And fortunately, evolution endowed us with a better memory for emotional experiences than for cognitive experiences. We don't remember facts well, but we remember emotional experiences very, very well. And this is a blessing for us. I think a lot of people would say that that's emotion playing the role of motivator, right? The valence of the emotion is going to kind of propel us towards certain actions. But I think you're also making another point, which is it's kind of like a compression algorithm, right? It's a way of taking a, a huge amount of data and sort of, you know, boiling it down to something, right? Which is, you know. Boiling it down to the stuff that are really, really important. And this is done in a way, remember it much more vividly than, uh, it's also affect us, for instance, at the personal level. So let me give a related example, okay? If we do a mistake, if we made a a bad decision, even at the individual level, without any interaction with anybody, just, you know, we bought the wrong stock and lost money. We're going to feel regret. The feeling of regret will remain for much longer than the ability to remember the circumstances under which this uh, regret has been generated. And it, it's wonderful because it's going to make us aware or protect ourselves from similar situations uh, we encounter in the future. So without learning, without emotions, we wouldn't have been able to learn well. Regret is a very important mechanism of a learning process, okay? And it's emotional. So, so this is kind of, you know, in the, in the data science literature, we talk about the confusion matrix, which is all about kind of getting an accurate understanding of when we're right and when we're wrong. And then we talk about the kind of the cost benefit matrix, which is kind of the consequences associated with our different errors. What emotion does is it basically, you know, it allows us to compress these two things so, so that, you know, what we remember is, you know, the magnitude of the mistake is wedded to the probability of the mistake. So our subjective probability estimates might be wrong, but the, if they're wrong in, in a way that leads to action, which uh, ultimately turns out to be good for us, then that's fine. We, we're okay with that type of error, right? Yeah. But it, it, it's a bit beyond that because, well, for instance, related to your question is, do we use emotions for rule of thumb, for instance, because we are cognitively limited, because our brain is limited in the amount of computation it can make. It's not an infinite computer. And I have a, a recent paper, that I, academic paper, that I published and showed that, for instance, rule of thumb that we used to think about as a mechanism that utilizes uh, the capacity of the brain optimally is not necessarily that. You can benefit from rules of thumb also, if your brain had no limited capacity, and the way you could uh, benefit from it is, again, in interactions, okay? Suppose that you have a rule of thumb in negotiations that you are not caving in for humiliating offers, and you establish yourself a reputation. Everybody knows that this guy is, is a stupid, you know? Even if he doesn't have an outside option, he wouldn't accept, you know, suppose that somebody wants to divide a cake with you and uh, he said, I'm going to take 90% of the cake. You're going to take 10% of the cake. And he tries to explain you, listen, you should accept it because you have no outside option. Let's take it or leave it, right? Now, if your rule of thumb is to say, sorry, no, I'm giving it up. It's not necessarily a stupid rule of thumb because if that's the reputation you generated for yourself, Next time you encounter to the same person or alternatively to somebody else who heard about this situation, 
they won't be tempted to offer you 10%. They, they know you'll reject it, right? And then they will make you a better offer. And then by, by adopting this seemingly stupid rule of sub, you actually make yourself better off. Right, but I think you're making a bigger point, which is you could have a rule of thumb like that. You could decide on a rule of thumb like that in a totally rational way. But that would require people to have some historical knowledge <laughs> about, you know, what you've decided to adopt. But with these social emotions, you can kind of communicate ex ante, right? And so I think this is a big point of your book is about the, the role of these social emotions as communication devices. And it's important, as you said, that this information will be transmitted credibly. That we did some, some experiments at Hebrew University at our experimental lab on this can tell you a little bit about this. So first of all, we don't know if you remember the reality show calls Friends and Fools. This is a game that starts with trivia questions and there is a pair of players that collect a lot of money together by answering questions. Sometimes it was played in the UK as a split or steal. They managed to raise together more than 150,000 pounds. Okay. And then there is a stage where they have to, where they have to divide it, right? And the way they divide it is something similar to the prisoner's dilemma, okay? They, they both have to decide whether they choose friends or foes, okay? If they both choose friends, they divide it equally. If one chooses friend and the other chooses foes, the one who chose foe will get everything and the other one will get nothing. And if they both choose foes, then the money is gold. Now, before they make the decision, they have to speak with one another for 30 seconds. And what we did, we assembled our students and asked them to look at the 30 seconds and then make prediction about what these people are going to do. What we found out is that our students, although they were not part of the situation itself, they didn't even speak English as a, as a mother language, but they speak fluently, of course, they could identify, they could hear the tone of voice, they could see the movement of the body, the facial expression, and they could predict very well. They could predict very well. Another thing we did is that we looked at the actual plays that these people, a lot of people who participated in, in the game, how they played. And what we found out is that when one player, they have to choose it simultaneously. So I don't know what you choose when I make my choice about friends and foes. But what we found out that conditional of one player choosing a friend, the probability of the other one to choose friends as well is higher. And, and the same thing with foes. Okay, so they are coordinated. You see a lot of friends, friends and foes and much less friends for or for friends, okay? Which means that when I'm looking at your face during the game, during this 30 seconds, I can make a very good prediction about what you're going to do. And if I believe you're going to do false, obviously I shouldn't do anything else but false. If I believe you're going to do friend, it's an incentive for me to say friend as well. So these are indications that we are very good that the emotional transmission, the transmission of emotion is a very reliable mode of communication. Well, and th this is a situation where uh, retaliation isn't even possible, right? So presumably if retaliation was possible, then, um, you know, the communication of one's propensity towards anger would be even more transparent, right? People are good at evaluating that as well. Yeah, but in this particular game, you have to take into account that the game is much broader than what only what, because there are, you know, millions of people seeing you mm -hmm. on TV. Right. And if you say that you'll play uh, friends and play fools, that, that, that may affect not only how much money you get, but also how people will treat you outside the game. So why is it that the, this signal is reliable, right? Because one would think that if you had the capacity to fake signals, then this would provide you with some advantage, right? So why don't we see a higher proportion of people in the population who are kind of good at faking these signals? Why hasn't the arms race kind of led us to... Uh, an okay, that's, that's an excellent question. There are two things. First of all, 
There are people who can fake better. Than, for instance, there are people, sociopaths, we, we used to call them, that, um, that are not nice people, you know, but they seem to be nice people, right? They, they make impression of being nice people. And they can, <laughs> you know, some of them, I know some of them as well. Uh, but for, but what, what's strange is that I'm, I'm very good at picking up on them almost immediately, and yet my colleagues aren't very good at it. Maybe because they're all economists, I don't know. Yeah. Now, these people can easily cheat, right? They are not doing as well as you thought they will do, Gregory, as you suggest they will do. The reason of that is that we live in a society and the society is communicating. I mean, people that you engage with communicate with other people. And if you created an impression that you are nice and, and you're trustworthy and so forth, and you turned out to uh, to screw up afterwards, this will become sort of commonly known within your community and people will avoid interacting with you. So that reduces substantially the advantage for faking, right? And, and these people also, that means that you may benefit from faking when you are external to your own society. Okay, so suppose that you now travel to Germany, you say, hell, of, you know, who's going to know me here? Okay, I'm, I'm going like to fake. Travel, the traveling salesman, yeah, right? Yeah, the traveling I'm going to fake against everybody. I'm, I'm going yeah. uh, to make a fortune here. Well, in that scenario, it's going to be harder for you to fake because you don't know the cultural signal that prevailed in, in this other society. You haven't been growing up here and you are not well informed. So fortunately, these signals are, are remain even today, okay, remain even today uh, useful and important. And I think one very interesting aspect of it is the difference between communicating online and face-to-face. -face. What you see, and this is partly why you see such terrible comments and, and posts and, and comments to this post on Facebook or other me social media. One of the reasons is that's the only tool for you to express what you want to say, right? You, nobody can look at your face. Nobody can hear your voice. Nobody can see your body movement. And all these expression, nonverbal expression, bodily expression are shut down for you when you are engaged with other online. And to compensate for that, and nevertheless, make sure that your point is made, you simply use nasty words or whatever other tools, verbal tools that you have available. Well, you, you did these studies that measure people's capacity to accurately understand these signals. You mentioned that there are a couple of things that can influence that. One is, is there sufficient motivation, right? Is there some interest in getting it right? And, and that tends to, to help. But you also mentioned, I think, that when people are given oxytocin, they become particularly bad at recognizing a deception, right? So presumably if you're, if you trust somebody, if you have some prior reason to trust somebody, then, you know, you don't see this, right? Uh, so what are some of the other factors that would influence one's capacity to accurately interpret these emotional signals? Yeah. So, so first of all, the way oxytocin affects our capacity and then more specifically, what we found in, in, in this study that I described uh, a few moments ago, if we give people oxytocin and compare their ability to make prediction in this task to others that receive placebo, the placebo people are doing way, way better. And the way they are doing better is that the oxytocin people are making decisions, are deciding very fast. They basically find this task of trying to figure out the intention of somebody else as being very annoying, as being, they feel uncomfortable in, in, in this position. And the reason is that oxytocin has an effect of generating trust. And if you ask yourself, when is it in life that you try to figure out the intention of other people? Not when you trust them, it's when you suspect them. When you trust them, you sort of feel quite embarrassed to get on into the nitty gritty of what they did. And this is the effect of oxytocin. By the way, we have published just a few weeks ago another paper on this topic where we looked at the way oxytocin affects the tendency to compete. What we found is that there is very interesting gender effect and it works better in reducing 
the eagerness to compete them for men relative than women. And apparently it has to do with some sort of interaction between oxytocin and testosterone, which is the male hormone that really pushes people to compete. And it sort of reduces the effect of testosterone because men are more endowed with more testosterone. It's more effective for them. So it's a magic hormone and, and we still don't know exactly all the things that he does in our social life. But sorry, Gregory, I might have deviated from your question. No, actually, I want to get into the gender differences in a bit. But, you know, we often, when we teach negotiations, we teach people that they should get their emotions in check and, and try to just focus on building the pie and so forth. And, and I think you, you made the point that maybe this is not the best way to approach negotiation. Maybe we should be more willing to wear our emotions on, on our sleeve. And in fact, if we were selecting a negotiator, right, we, we might want to pick a negotiator who is more emotional. I mean, it seems counterintuitive, right? Isn't that the kind of thing that's going to lead us to World War I, right? When we take these stubborn people and throw them into a, a negotiation setting, I mean, aren't they more likely to walk away without an agreement if they're more emotional, more reactive, uh, et cetera? Well, it all depends on the level of emotional reaction, right? And, and I stress this in the book that I'm not recommending people, you know, to self-control and uh, start shooting around, right? What I do recommend is to put aside the idea of super rationality in negotiations. Let me give you a, some practical consequence of this. Suppose you're selling, the, you're about to sell a car, okay? You can have two strategies. You can tell the potential buyer how a great deal it's going to be for him. This is this car, you know, the price is very reasonable for what you could see. You, know, you can do what many people do in negotiations, transmitting information which is not verifiable. But you're going to say stuff on your on how well the engine is working, on how reasonable the price is, you know, and uh, these all are not verifiable. And the person on the other side will be quite skeptical for good reason. And he will realize, right, if you, are, if you will be very eager to, to give this information, it will be, you know, why is this guy so eager to sell it to me, right? Well, what's wrong with the car? Instead, if you genuinely, I say genuinely, not by cheating, genuinely manage to transmit to the other person how you enjoy driving this car on a daily basis. And if it's not a car, some other stuff that you, or a house, how sorry you are that you have to leave this house and move to another city because you liked it so much, right? This is an emotional form of transmitting information, but because it's not about fact, but it's, it's about subjective experience and you say something which is correct and with it, all the cues and all the signals that the other person can read. I think it's going to be much more effective. Well, and presumably you're also, if you're given a low ball offer, uh, you know, you have to storm off and, and get very upset, right? Because otherwise they'll, they won't, they won't believe you when you say you're not going to kind of lower your price. Right. My grandmother used to always say that she say, walk, just walk out, you know, in a huff if you don't get the price you want. I found it very difficult because I can't, I can't pretend but that what, way. what you can do with emotions in reaction to a stubborn offer that doesn't go further, that doesn't compromise, right? Is that you say, again, it has to be genuine to a certain extent. And, and, and usually uh, you would feel that way. If it's, a, if it's not a sufficient offer, you can say, I, you know what? I'm a bit insulted that you are offering this to me, right? And, and here again, you are transmitting something which is easy to connect to. Because what you are basically doing when you talk about your emotional experience, emotional reaction, you are submitting some sort of a document. The message start being a verifiable message. And these documents are, again, your facial expression, your intonation, your everything that, that runs into it. And it's easier to connect to it. It's easier to make it credible. Well, you mentioned also that, that, you know, people can dip into their emotional kind of inventory kind of at will to some degree, right? You can, you mentioned, you tell an anecdote about how you were being interviewed on television and, you know, you were able to summon up some genuine emotion, right? So it wasn't that you were faking your emotion. It's just that you have like a bit of a dial that you control and you can decide, you know, 
whether or not you're going to kind of dip into it and reveal it or whether you're going to kind of suppress it and, and conceal it, right? I mean, uh, we use emotion strategically. Kids know it better than us. You know, the, the, there is this phenomena that when I remember from my kids, when we were not looking at them and they were falling down, they would stand up and continue playing. But if we glanced at them at the time when they, uh, when they were falling down, they would react with crying. We all do it. And we utilize emotions. I'll, I'll tell you what, I mean, we are both teachers. And I'll tell you some experience that I had as the chairman of the economics department at the Hebrew University. We were, we were trying to figure out what would be the right process for appealing grades on exams. This was always... It's always an issue. It's always an issue. And, and we had very liberal... I was thinking trial by fire would be the best uh, best approach. <laughs> yeah. Well, we started with very liberal procedure where you can, you know, you can appeal with the teaching assistant. If it doesn't work, you appeal with the lecturer, with the director of the course, and then now with the head of department and so forth and so on. And I was uh, inquiring with colleagues abroad and people who also had experience with it. And I decided to make it as tough as possible. Basically tell the students there is one round. We, we may make a mistake, but on average, these mistakes could be in your favor or against you. But there's going to be only one round and it's non-negotiable. And I tell you, during the liberal phase of things, we had people crying, people Really, I mean, in, in Leicester, where I was before, there was one student that had to be removed to hospital because she fainted during this negotiation type of the grade. And when we moved to the more rigorous, right, more sort of nasty procedure, not only that these scenarios didn't take place, in student evaluation at the end of the year, they said that they are much, much more satisfied with this procedure of appealing than in previous years. Right. And, and the reason is that, that, that those people who cried during negotiating the grade, they cried honestly. They didn't fake it. Right. They felt that they are being to some extent abused, that, that it's unfair and that they, they worked so hard. And, but these emotions were generated because of the circumstances. Our emotions are contextual, are circumstantial. We have to, to take this into account. I mean, many times they are contextual in a good sense, okay? But they have to contextualize. We did one experiment, one of the other experiments that we did that to prove this was where we assembled students and connected them to um, skin conductance is a, is a machine that can read the, both the, the type of emotion that you experience during uh, a questionnaire that psychologists are using for years now, for decades, okay? And also the level how arousal their emotion is. And we generated scenario in which we told people that they have to engage with one another. And we have a measure to, we have a way to measure, for instance, in one group, how much angry they are about the way they are treated by the other person. And the more angry they're going to be, the more we are going to compensate them for the fact that the other person didn't treat them well. So we created a monetary, a monetary incentive, a material incentive to, to be emotional, right? And we did the same with, by telling people, the other group, that the, we're going to compensate them, the more happy and satisfied they're going to be with the way they're treated by the other person. The third group was a control. And we could see very prominent that the first group was more angry regardless of how they were treated, right? They were more angry. This was measured objectively from the skin conductors, also from the way they expressed themselves and what they said about how they felt, but also in, a, in an objective measure of the skin conductors, right? Unfortunately, one thing we found, so the effect on happiness was much smaller. There was some, but smaller. And we all who ran the experiment felt sorry that it's not as easy to get people satisfied and happy as it is to get them angry. Hmm? Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be nice if we could buy, buy in, incentives, earning like a few more, like a five extra dollars, get somebody to be happy. But that doesn't work. Apparently, partly because I believe that anger is a much more instrumentally important 
emotion for us in life than happiness. Happiness is nice. It's, we feel nice to be happy and, and satisfied, but it doesn't bring us anywhere. Whereas anger does bring us somewhere. We basically, we are motivated to do something to get out of the situation that we are in. Yeah, I once did some work with a chief happiness and positivity officers, and you know they were going to be evaluated based on how happy their teams were, and and this apparently was ex extremely stressful. They told their people, you know, be happy or else, right? We're gonna we're gonna find you, and it didn't work very well. But you did some amazing, some fascinating experiments using you know ultimatum game and trust game, uh, and you explored kind of cultural differences, right? And I, I, what I found fascinating about this was that it, it wasn't simply about kind of in-group, out-group differences, but, but rather that the expectations and norms differ across different cultures. And, and in particular, you're looking at how kind of Israelis and, and, and Palestinians uh, interacted in these games. Now, this, of course, is one of the most well-studied experiments in all of economics, but these studies were, I thought, very illuminating. Could you talk a bit about those studies? Yeah, this is a study that I did with my former postdoc supervisor, uh, Reinhard Zelten, who got the Nobel Prize in uh, 1995, and we collaborated for many years, and this was part of this collaboration, not long before he died, unfortunately. And what we did is we generated, we got a big grant from for the German Foundation, and we assembled Israelis and Palestinians and generated a trust game between Israelis, Palestinians, and German in all possible combinations. I'll explain very quickly what a trust game is. A trust game is a way to measure how much person A trusts person B. How do you measure it? You give person A a certain amount of money, let's say $100, and he can decide how much he trusts for it to player two. But what player two is going to get is not the transfer itself, but three times the transfer. So if player one is sending 20 out of the 100, player two will see 60 in his hand. Player one gave up only 20 and player two sees 60. And then player two can reward player one voluntarily, whatever he wants. Now, if you fully trust, if you are player A and you fully trust player B, you should transfer the entire 100. You will have 300. Or if you're just a pure utilitarian, right? So a pure utilitarian is going to transfer all of it, right? No, but it's a pure utilitarian if you believe the other person will reward you because the other person... Well, no, pure, a, a pure utilitarian doesn't care about their own payoff, right? So they would just they would just say, okay. Or if you are or if you're true utilitarian, right? If you are trying to maximize the total, total profit of the two people, or if you are purely altruistic, well, Maybe, okay. And you feel that the other guy is nasty and doesn't want to tell. But if you are decent and selfish to an extent and, and you trust the other person, uh, you will transfer the entire 100. He will have 300 and you will divide it 50 50. You'll get 150. So you made 50 bucks uh, profit. If you have no trust in the other person, you should send nothing. And how much you send is a measure of how much you trust the other person. So what we were expecting, you know, given the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, is that once we get an Israeli and Palestinian together, there will be a zero trust and uh, we won't see any transfer taking place. Wrong. <laughs> this was not the case. What we found out is that there were hardly any discrimination. People transferred to partners from their own nationality pretty much as they transferred to other people. So Israelis transferred to Israelis pretty much as they transferred to Palestinians and vice versa. However, the amount of transfer was very different across cultures. The Palestinians were the most generous. Why I'm doing quotation mark is because it's not clear that it's generosity. It's maybe just believing that they can trust the other person. And, and that trust was justified when there was another Palestinian on the other side, right? The trust was justified, right? The Israelis, so the Palestinians would trust for, likely, if, if it's 100, they would transfer about 60 to 70% of the pie, whereas Israelis would transfer about 40% of the pie, and Germans were somewhere in between. I was, to some extent, both, you know, as an Israeli, I was a bit ashamed and a little bit puzzled. Where is it coming from? 
particularly given the, the, you know, the public spiritedness of Israelis, right? They're willing to sacrifice for the common good and particularly in times of national crisis, right? There's no... Oh, that's the issue. That's the issue. In time of national crisis, in time of national crisis, they are requested to be altruistic and give a lot from themselves up to their life. And when there is no time of crisis, that's the time for individualism. That's the time for making money. That's the time for being for yourself. And among Palestinians, it's constantly a time of crisis, right? At least that's the psychology that prevails among a large part of the population. That has to, to a large extent, account for these differences. Did you do this longitudinally? It would have been interesting to see like when conflict was kind of going up or down, whether you'd see kind of an increase or decrease in the Israeli trust or generosity. That's, that's an excellent question. I mean, we are submitting now a new proposal from the DEFGE with a different group in Germany. And one of the things we are indeed suggesting is to, to check how events in the Israeli-Palestinian relationship affect the way that we behave. So I think some people have said that the trust is higher in societies where you have more rule of law and, and that sort of thing. And that doesn't seem to align with those differences that you found, right? Yeah, I think it's very much, I'll try to explain. I think there is in the Palestinian society and in general, in societies which are less developed and in which the economy is less prosperous and the rule of law is less developed, there is a huge trust. There's much more trust among the small community within you, uh, you live. That means your family members, your neighbors, your, the people you, you study with and so forth. You need their trust because you need to survive, right? And that trust is very important. Because most of the interaction are with these people develop in the trust game a very high standard of trusting other people and they extrapolate, right? They bring their own standard. We call it ethnos centrism in the sense that your rules are developed by the ethnic groups with whom you belong, and then you transfer them into a different society. I mean, in societies that the role of the family is very important, you see a huge trust within the broad family, right? But you see much less trust when you go out of this small circle. And does that, I mean, you talked about the kosher laws and the Sabbath, respect for the Sabbath. And I, I thought that was a, a fascinating, I was actually at dinner with an Israeli friend of mine just two days ago. And I, I mentioned this, that I described this model and he was perplexed by it. But I, I think it was, it's actually uh, fairly compelling, this idea that it doesn't really matter what the rules are, as long as the rules create some frictions around outgroup interactions, that's going to build solidarity within the group, right? So, you know, this is Avner Greif's story, right? Where if there's racism, if there's, you know, ostracism, if there's anything which would kind of lead to greater segregation, this should strengthen the bonds potentially within the community. People find it necessary. All this is almost a survival issue to belong to a group. And groups cannot be free entry. And the group has to, to some extent, to make sure that those who are inside will remain inside. And sometimes also make it difficult for external people to join in. Because the more cohesive the group is, the, the higher the level of solidarity and the easier it is for each one of them to take care of the other person. Now, something that connects very well to it is an article that I published two weeks ago in the Weekend magazine in Haaretz, in Haaretz newspaper, one of the main newspapers in Israel, which led to death threats against me. Many, not one, but several. And what I was trying to explain is the philosophy or the psychology of the hardcore of the anti-vaccine people. Okay, the hardcore. Those people who, who, who don't just refrain from getting vaccinated, but really um, engage aggressively with trying to convince others not to do so as well. And my explanation was that in era that we live in, the era of the social media where 
many of us have thousands of friends online, but almost no one outside Facebook. We are craving for smaller and smaller groups. We need this club to make us associate with a small group. Now, the anti-vaccine, the hardcore anti-vaccine is a club. It's a club. It's on the verge of becoming a religious, but it's definitely a club. To be a member of this club, you have to pay your dues because otherwise, you know, everybody can in, even if he has no interest whatsoever for, uh, in other people, right? You can be free riders. Well, it's, a, it's, a handi- it's, like a, it's a handicap, right? So it's... it's uh... I mean, the group worries about free riders, right? Those who pretend themselves to be supporter and, and ask for the goodies from the group, but contribute nothing, right? How do you screen out those? You require commitment from those who join. Threatening somebody who writes an article, threat, life-threatening somebody who writes an article is showing a commitment. It's like saying everybody in the group, listen, I'm risking myself to be interrogated by the police. Indeed, the police, I, I issued compliance against the most radical uh, threats that I received. And the police, the Israeli police investigated. So these people are now interrogated. And to some extent, they're gaining from that. I'm aware of it because they could show, right? They could show how committed they are. The other tools that these people have is like coming up with far-fetched conspiracy theories, right? What does this serve? If you ask yourself, why do they need these ridiculous stories? By spreading something so far-fetched and unbelievable that everybody knows is, is nonsense. You're saying, listen, I'm excluding myself from the outside society. Those who are outside our group are going to help me as, as a crazy guy. They're not going to. So I am on your, I'm in your hands. I, I have nowhere to go. Okay. I'm yours. This is something very important because unless we are, if we don't understand it, we, we are going to deal very wrongly with it. My basic message was stop with all these information by the state that explain how important it is to get vaccinated. I mean, this information only strengthens these people. They will always, you know, they, they don't need information. They won't be convinced. Right. They won't be. You're supplying them with the tools that they need yes. to engage in with, this costly exactly. signaling, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So in the same way that, you know, if, if you have laws which exclude a group, right, that's going to, that can potentially create more solidarity in the group. And then when those laws go away, the solidarity just dis- disappears, right? So, yeah. So that was my point against the anti-vaccine group. There is already groups that are forming <laughs> to be against the anti-vaccine group. I mean, the more severely you try to fight them, the more, again, you supply them with the tools to create this commitment, right? If we ignore them altogether, we say, okay, you, you know, we don't cite them, we don't quarrel with them, it's going to be much much more difficult for them to sustain this issue as something that gets people together. And, and you know what, Gregory, what really annoys me and f- frustrates me is that these people are young people, smart young people with a lot of energy. And instead of using this energy to form a group over something that benefits society, like helping the poor, like take an issue that, that is deserving, right? And form this group, do the commitment within the group, get the solidarity within the group that you need, but on something that benefits us rather than on something that can cause more people to be sick. Or maybe just to offer an alternative supply of kind of collegiality tools, maybe have more sports franchises that people can follow, right? That might serve the same function. I mean, not in addition to anger, right, and regret, you, you talk about love, right? And an economist talking about love is not always, you, you don't see that too often, but, you know, love is also an, an emotional signal of commitment, right? And you have a whole section in, in the book about love and relationships. Right, right. It's an important chapter. And, and love generally is the thing that facilitates the most important evolutionary trait that we have, which is inbreeding, right? Producing the next generation. So that's one aspect. Then the other aspect is having somebody to protect us with full commitment, right? These are two things that are really indispensable in terms of 
survivability. And like Anchor, Anchor is the way we make commitment by Anchor is that we are basically tying our hands behind our back. When we are angry, we're telling the other party, listen, I know that accepting this offer might be financially or materially much better outcome for me than uh, declining your offer, but my hands are tied behind my back. I'm mentally incapable of accepting such a humiliating offer. Love does the same thing, but in a reverse way, right? Love, by way of showing love and affection to our partner, we, we actually can say, listen, my hands are tied behind my back. I'm not capable of doing stuff by considering only my own interest. I, my brain is endowed with reasoning that thinks about your welfare perhaps more than my welfare. And this is an enormously important commitment that, again, only genuine love can is able to transmit. Well, I think that your argument about the role of anger in a commitment is very, I think, very uh, powerful. And I think it's it, very convincing. But, you know, most negotiations and interactions now are at the kind of organizational level, right? At the corporate level. And so, you know, organizations need to be able to commit and institutions need to be able to commit, you know, companies need to be able to commit. And so is anger, is there an equivalent of... And you will be surprised how much individual emotions affect CEOs and eventually the decisions are made by human beings, even in... Uh, so would an, would an organization that had like more dictatorial, right? One that had a very, you know, a leader, like an Elon Musk, right? Everyone equates the organization with the person. Would an organization that has that kind of very strong identity with an individual be able to make commitments more effectively, you know, than one that's the one that's run by process or, you know, where there's a, a process that would presumably iron out any kind of individual differences? Not necessarily. My colleague, John Cagle from the State University of Ohio did some very nice experiment where he compared negotiation between groups to negotiation between individuals. So the scenario, the, the issue was the same, but in one treatment, this was person I negotiating against person B and in the other world was two group negotiating and then sharing the benefits among them. And it turns out that the uh, group were more aggressive than individual. So anger was building up very evidently, very strongly within groups, more than by individual, because there is some sort of affirmation, some sort of one actually induces the other to be more radical to some extent. And, and it has to do with this group effect that we, we talked about. It's us against that. So for me to show support to our side, very often I'll be more radical than what I would have been if I negotiated by myself. I would be more compromising, but I'm not allowing myself to be more compromising, maybe because I need to show that I'm part of the group. So I, so I wonder if we had, you know, negotiations by, you know, the grownups, right? So if two countries are entering into some conflict, you know, if the leaders are held more accountable right, more democratically accountable, would that increase or decrease the likelihood of a conflict arising? It, it depends on the person. I would say the, it, it, it depends on the personality of the leader and on the politics and the culture within the, uh, the country. But on average, on average, the, the, there are some papers about it, that uh, theory, game theory paper that show that if a democratic country is negotiating against the dictatorial one, then the, in certain circumstances, the Democratic Party can do better, okay? Because by, by showing, showing the, the leader can, can show that he's, his hands are tied, but so he can demonstrate this commitment by using, for instance, parliament to express, to, to explain the, his counterpart that, you know, I, I cannot reach that far. I'm that, you know, the, 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 you know, my parliament will withdraw me out. And sometimes the leader would back the parliament to offer him this rope that will tie his hand behind his back. That one aspect. The other aspect that, that helps a lot. I wrote an article this, this time, uh, a Time magazine of the U.S. that helps a lot dictatorship. In, negotiation, in international negotiation is when they come 
from a religious positions like Iran, when they adopt an, an attitude that we get instruction by upstairs, right? And there are things that we can't do simply because, or if they develop a facade by which they feel humiliated by the other party. I think Iran has exploited this type of strategy to the end during the negotiations with Barack Obama explicitly said, we are not going to get them on their knees. We, we will make sure not to get them. And indeed, they didn't fall on their knees. I think uh, a better strategy or a, a corresponding strategy for a democratic liberal country to use in response to uh, we are religious, we are instructed by God, is to say we are liberal country, we have our own principles. We have principles about human rights, about freedom of women, about all sorts of things that we, unfortunately, we need to see also uh, payments on this part, right? So by adopting the values of a liberal country, some type of religious, I would say, some type of religion, it may give U.S., Britain, and the West in general much more power in negotiating with dictatorial states. Well, you also write a bit about the workplace, and I, I teach courses on the, on the workplace, and there are a couple of insights in, in the book. One is about incentives and about how incentives can potentially backfire, right, if poorly designed. And then the other insight had to do with competition and, and competitiveness, and in particular, kind of gender differences related to competition and how, you know, policies that are intended to address workplace imbalances might be ineffective because they don't really understand the reasons behind these differences. Do you talk a bit about that and, and do you do more work in, in the workplace? Have you done any recent research on the workplace? Oh, I have published several papers, but more theoretical, one recently in the AER and one which is, is also, also almost first coming in the AER. But I'll, I'll tell, you about, tell you about works of others. Okay, Niederer, who is a very important researcher in this field, and others, also Aldo Rostocchini, found out that there is substantial gender difference in the willing to compete. And she attributes some of the existing gender discrimination, and I use the name discrimination, I think this should be taken care of. It's not, it's not, it's not a good thing generally in terms of fairness and, and, and justice, but it also not a good thing in terms of economics. And U.S. and Britain have done a lot in trying to generate more equality in the workplace between men and women. Many other countries haven't done enough. But she is pointing out, she's pointing out that through experiments that men are more eager to compete than women. So when it gets to these top positions in corporations or organizational politics. And, and by, by compete, would focus on relative placement, how you score relative to others. How you score relative to others. And eventually, mm -hmm. when it gets to the top positions in, as I said, in either public organizations or uh, commercial companies, it's exactly that. It's comparing yourself to others, to very small group of people at the top of the pyramid. And the, the entire, I mean, the entire way in which we think about the workplace now is as a tournament, right? So all companies have a tournament model of compensation and promotion, so which is, you know, designed specifically to kind of motivate this competitive or relativistic thinking, right? Now, there, there are a very common mechanism that tries to reduce discrimination or, or increase representation of women in top jobs. And I would like to suggest a different one. The, the standard one is called affirmative action, which basically says if we have two candidates and they are almost equal, not fully equal, but almost equal, okay, we'll give preference to the woman over the man. This type of mechanism is not capable of dealing with the found findings of Morel Niederer, namely that women are averse to competition, it wouldn't help, wouldn't help. There is something else that, that could help, 
and it's novel. I, I, I don't know how people will, would think about it, but I suggest to try it. And what I'm suggesting is that there will be no affirmative action whatsoever. If there are two candidates, the best one will be chosen to the post, even when he or she is slightly better than the other candidate. But if it's a woman that were selected, she will be compensated. She will be given a higher salary on average than if the winner is a man. And now that can help by giving more incentive to women to compete. This can actually deal with this, with the, the source of, of the inequality in the, in the, in the working place, right? People have, women have some aversion to it, but if they see the consequence of winning, which is higher, and not only, but, but it's not only the monetary, uh, but it's also the prestige that will be asso associated with the fact that this woman has gone so far. And this appreciation is partly being reflected by the center, but not only. Then by increasing the motivation to compete, we'll get more people competing. We'll get more women competing. And if more women compete, more women will get these jobs. If you look at how economics department across the world, the demographic, for instance, the Hebrew University, overall, I'm not talking economics, but in academia, most students are women. Most students who graduate undergraduate studies are women. On the MA, it's more or less 50-50. There is a slightly higher proportion of men among those who finish PhD. Slightly more substantially among those who, who get an assistant professor position. When we get to full professor, it's probably 10% women, 90% men. It's incredible. And Muriel Niederel inside is really the main issue when I talk about this inequality. Because as we move higher in, in rankings, if it becomes more and more competitive. It becomes really A versus B. It becomes a matter of ranking. We have to motivate more women to, in spite of this aversion, to be willing to compete. And by making it more attractive to them, partly is, is also the issue of removing disruption and constraint for these women in terms of family commitments and things like that. But other than that, I, I think that giving them higher prestige when they make it both in terms of money and in terms of whatever it is beyond money is something that is going to create more motivation for women to compete and hence get more people into these jobs. Well, also, I think you point out that in the, a lot of these experiments, when you, when you get rid of the ranking and you get rid of the, the relative reward structure, that, you know, performance is the, the differences in performance are kind of uh, evened out. So could you maybe think about having within an organization a individual contributor track and then sort of a, a different track. And so to get the most out of both sorts of people, one that, you know, really taps into the competitive energies would lead them down one track and then have a different track entirely where, you know, it, it would be all about rewarding you based on your absolute output and downplay the, the rankings and the, and the hierarchy. So th this is one thing that is important. Yeah. Taking out to some extent, the tournament aspect, the tournament component in, in our incentives to, to compete, it's not easy because we individuals are, tend to compare ourselves to others. So we need it. We need it to, to be incentivized properly. But there is a broader issue, which is in building incentives in teams, in, in the workplace, how much of these incentives are individual at all and how much are they collective? Because collective incentives are absolutely necessary, right? Because many of the tasks that we are engaged with are only successful if we are able to cooperate with other people. If it's your success means not mine, if your success means my failure, Okay, there's no way I can, I can willingly collaborate with you. There's a lot of interest in my field of the design of incentives in organizations. 
And there's some interesting findings about the optimal mechanism. And they all show that some collective component in generating incentives are necessary. Well, Yal, I think we could keep talking forever. You know, it's great to see you again. There's so much more in this book, Feeling Smart, I recommend. There's discussions about art. There's discussions about herd behavior, more on the handicap principle, a bunch of stuff on team spirit, more on even on Cholent, right? So we got a, a great insight there. <laughs> and so uh, I recommend the book and hopefully we'll chat again sometime soon in person. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.